Last week we began a study of a series of messages from 1 Corinthians 13 called It's All About His Love. And my experience has been that whenever I begin to give attention to something like that or we begin to study a particular topic, the Lord gives us ample opportunities to apply what we're learning. And so I'm going to ask you to bow your heads even as we begin. And if you would, just bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you believe that God is teaching you uh, very specifically about love and loving someone that may be difficult in your life, uh, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, would you just lift your hand up and put it back down? Well, I knew that. I knew that. And I want to pray with you. And if you are a person who's struggling at this moment, I believe God is, um, wants to encourage you and he wants to speak to you and he wants to live his love through you. Pray with me. Father, thank you that your word is not like any other book we will ever read. I'm thankful that your word is living spiritual truth that as it passes through our mind and our heart, that it has the power to change us. And that when we open our minds and our hearts to your truth, it will change us. So Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you not only fill me and speak through me so that what happens here is, is from you, but would you fill every heart here as they, he or she opens their minds to you, as they open their life to you? And may today be the beginning of a level of change and a fresh new direction and an unburdening of the heart and relief for the weary that only you can accomplish. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we, as we grow together as a church, one of the things that has to happen is not only do we want people coming to our worship service, but we want to encourage people to be a part of Bible study. And so during the two service times at 9 and 1030, we have Bible study groups that are meeting also at the same time. So we have groups that are meeting right now as you and I are worshiping the Lord here. And then we have another set of groups. Many of you will be involved in those groups at 1030. And, and so as a church grows larger, it really has to grow smaller if it's going to be the church. Because we can't love people from a distance. And we're, we're talking about love over the next few weeks. I can only love people up close. And so one of the best places to do that is in a Bible study group. And, and I'm so excited because of what God is doing in the life of our church over the last month. Not only are we seeing people of all ages being saved literally every week, but we're also seeing our Bible study groups take on a whole new life. Last Sunday, we had nearly 670 people in Bible study. And that hasn't happened in years at Wynn Baptist Church. And so we praise God for that, amen? We praise the Lord for that. And uh, after the morning worship this uh, past Sunday, I had a gentleman come and talk to me about his relationship to the Lord. Same thing happened Sunday night, and he prayed to receive Christ. And so we're seeing the Holy Spirit at work. Saw one young man talk to his mama during the song service last week. 
and um, told his mom he wanted to be saved, and she stepped outside with him. She shared the gospel with him. He received Christ, and they came forward at the end of the service. And uh, that's the second time that's happened, before the sermon. And so we're thinking about giving invitations before the sermon. Um, If that's what God wants to do, we want to fully cooperate with what he is doing among us. The title of this morning's message is Love When It Hurts. Love When It Hurts. We began studying the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 last week. And, um, and we learned several things. We learned that the people in Corinth were doing all kinds of ministry, but they really weren't loving each other. Phenomenal gifts, remarkable acts of God. They were involved in all of these things, but yet they weren't loving each other. You know, churches can do that still. They can be very involved in ministry in their community or, or in their state or around the country, around the world. They can be very engaged in ministry and yet not have love. And so the Apostle Paul speaks to that. That can happen with husbands and wives. We can be doing our job at home. We can be doing our job at work. And yet husbands and wives can come to a place where they're truly and really not loving each other as God intended. We learned that there were three ways in which the word love uh, originates in the New Testament. There are three different words that are used. One of those words was phileo, and that's the word most of us have in mind when we say the word love. It refers to love where there's some basis of attraction, some basis of connection with somebody, there's some affection involved. Uh, It's the foundation of romantic love, it's the foundation of family love, phileo. And then we saw another word, eros, and it describes uh, sensual, physical love, and that's used in the New Testament. But then the love that's described in this passage that we're studying is a kind of love that God has for you and me, and it's agape love. And it's a kind of love that stands before someone else and requires nothing from them. It's a self-giving, sacrificial kind of love that chooses to give without regard to how the other person makes me feel or what they've done. It's really not about who they are. It's all about who God is in me and how he's loving them through me. And so agape love doesn't require anything to act. And it, in fact, is very, very powerful. Loving God and loving others is the greatest commandment. We saw that last week. And we also know that it doesn't matter what else you do in life. If you are not a person who loves, then your life is not going to amount to very much. And so love makes the difference. We saw that last week. So as Paul continues after verse 3 in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, Paul wants us to know what agape love looks like. What is God's love like? Now, a lot of times when you and I describe something, we use nouns. Well, they were like a, a you know, heavenly sunset. You know, her hair was like a beautiful shade of silver. I got to say that. Um, I got to, you know, we, we use nouns. But Paul does something interesting here. He uses 15 verbs in verses 4 through 7 and 8. He uses 15 verbs. He doesn't describe love as an object. He describes love as something that is being done, something that is active. And so uh, Paul wants us to know what agape love looks like. And, And these 15 verbs, by the way, they tell us two things. They first tell us something about the character of Jesus Christ who lives inside every Christian. Sometimes we say, well, I can't love that person. 
And yet, if this is the character of Jesus Christ that's described here, and Jesus Christ lives in you, you most certainly have the capacity to love like this. And so it's describing the character of Jesus. I'll tell you what else it's doing. You know what God's mission is in your life? It is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. And you know what these 15 verbs are? It's his, it's his game plan. <laughs> it's, it's, his, it's his outline of the path, of the lessons that God wants to teach you. This is where he's taking you. And so you can cooperate with this process of spiritual transformation, of spiritual growth, or you can resist it. But this is the plan, these 15 verbs, as they're described in 1 Corinthians 13. And beginning in verse 4, I want to read it to you. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Can't wait till we get to that all things verse. And then verse 8, love never fails. Today we're going to give our attention to those first two verbs found in verse 4. Love suffers long, and is kind. Now, for love to suffer long means that there's been some kind of hurt or some kind of provocation. And immediately we begin to realize that what Paul's discussing here is not hypothetical pie-in-the-sky idealism. He's describing kind of love that exists in the real world. In the real world where you have people who are critical, where you have people who are mean, where you have people who, who do things to you that are hurtful, who have people who are, not, who are not clear in their commitments. You have people who let you down. He says, love is something that suffers long. It gets hurt. And so there are two markers of Jesus' love in me that I'm looking for, that I want to be sensitive to, that when I have the opportunity to exercise it, I want to draw and reach for these two markers. I am to handle hurt first without any form of retaliation. I want to handle hurt without any form of retaliation. It says love suffers long. Now, suffers long is a great, great translation because the Greek word there is actually a compound uh, Greek word. It puts two Greek words together. And the first Greek word describes the kind of heat, uh, inner heat, uh, a heated breath, uh, a heat that comes from a lot of activity, and, and it's a heat that comes from within, so it's an emotional heat. And the second word describes something that's long in time or distance. So let's think about that for just a moment. Love suffers long. Love has an inner heat that it recognizes exists. So I got some charcoal up here, okay? Charcoal. Grilled out last night. Going to eat leftovers. It's good, okay? Now, here's what happens when a person has the love of Christ flowing through them and someone hurts them. If they are practicing this consistently, here's what happens to 
that hurt feeling or that hurt that is caused. They try to take that hurt and they try to put as much distance between them and that hurt as possible. Now that's different than what we tend to do. Because when someone hurts me, here's what I tend to do. I fire it up, baby. (laughs) I fire it up. And I keep it right here. Don't we? And I boil. And I burn. And it churns. And the heat's right there. And you may come up and say to me, and they say, how you doing today, Don? And you're not the one that hurt me. But because I'm boiling and I'm churning, guess what? I'm fine! You know? I just sort of let you have it. Because what's in me is, is this heat, and I'm holding on to it. When, when it says that love suffers long, here's what it does. It takes the thing that causes the heat, and it puts it as far away from your heart as you possibly can. And that's what long means. It means in terms of distance. It also can mean in terms of time. It can be like a long fuse that you never light. And you get as long a fuse as you can and say, look, if you're going to set me off, it's going to take more than that. Because I put the thing that burns in me, I put it far, far away, and I have, uh, there's a long, long fuse, and I pulled the fuse, and you can't light it. I'm the only one that can light it. And, and so it's a very powerful word picture that is being used here, here. And so love gets hurt, but love doesn't return hurt. It gets hurt, but it doesn't return hurt. I could retaliate, but I won't retaliate. That's what this kind of love does when Jesus is operating inside you and me. I could, but I won't, and I won't ever. Love is harmless. Love does no harm, even when it's hurt. There's a second thing about handling hurt here. This is kind of um, passive. I don't do anything. I get hurt. There's some kind of provocation. I don't do anything. I don't respond. I don't return with hurt. I keep it as far from me as I can. But here's the second thing. I'm to handle hurt with deliberate acts of compassion. So, So when someone hurts me, I come back with something else. And it's not retaliation. Kindness... It says, love is long, suffers long and is kind. Kindness is normally a noun in the New Testament and in secular Greek literature of Paul's day. Kindness is normally a noun. At this point in God's Word, kindness is converted to a verb. It is the only place in the Bible where kindness is used as a verb. It is the only place in Greek literature where kindness is used as a verb. In the secular Greek world, they never use this word as a verb. It's almost like Paul invented the word, and the people that came after Paul, the first generations of Christians writing about kindness, used the word he used, but they got it from him. It didn't exist before this. And so it's, it's really kind of odd to think about it or to say it, but here's what I do. Someone hurts me, I kindness them back. I kindness them back. You ever kindness somebody? That's what he's saying here. Love kindnesses. I'm going to kindness you. That's what it does. So love goes around kindnessing people. Love understands that hurt is caused by people that hurt. And if I return hurt for hurt, all I do is perpetuate the cycle, sometimes for generations in my own home. 
Responding with hurt only perpetuates a cycle. Kindness keeps my own heart from being infected by the damage that hurt causes. And so someone hurts, and i got to do something back. So what do I do? I kindness them back. It is active compassion. Now, how do you do that? As we study 1 Corinthians 13, what we want to do is, is take what God's Word says, and we want to make it practical. So how do we do this? Well, Jesus teaches us how to do this in a, in a story that he told, just like last week, but new story, Matthew 18. So if you want to turn there, we're going to spend the rest of our time there. Matthew 18, we're talking about love suffers long and is kind, and we want to see it illustrated somewhere in the teaching of Jesus or in, or in one of the stories of Scripture. How can I love someone when it hurts? How can I love someone when it hurts? Step number one. I need to stop keeping score. I need to stop keeping score. If I'm going to love someone when it hurts, i got to stop keeping score. Now, in our culture, this is not the norm. I love people who love me. If you hurt me, I'm not forgetting that. I'm going to make you pay. And we applaud good comebacks. And we applaud strong paybacks. I mean, I've said in movie theaters where somebody got somebody back, and everybody said... I mean, that's what we do. It was the same thing in Paul's culture. If somebody hurt you, if somebody injured you, if somebody offended you, it was a sign of weakness to just let that pass. You had to act. You had to act swiftly. You had to crush them. And that was good leadership. And the Corinthian church had this cultural mindset as well. They, uh, they were going to lawsuits with each other, going to law, going to court. I'll sue you. They were in the same church. They were, taking, they were cutting each other out of the Lord's Supper, this uh, love feast. They were, they were getting out ahead of each other. They were dividing up into groups saying, my teacher's better than your teacher. My pastor's better than your pastor. I mean, that's, they were doing all this kind of stuff. And, and so this, they had been infected with this idea that when someone hurts you or offends you, what you got to do is get them back. But the Bible says that this love that's here, love is that which suffers long and is kind is not an indicator of weakness. In fact, it takes remarkable, even supernatural strength to do this. In Proverbs 16, verse 32, the Bible says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Of Jesus in 1 Peter 2.23, it says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. It doesn't take any strength at all to blow a gasket and to go off on people. It doesn't take any strength at all. But it takes the very power of God not to retaliate. Supernatural strength to return kindness in the face of great offense. Now, when someone hurts you over and over again, that hurt is real. And at some point, you got to be asking the question, where do I draw the line, Pastor? I mean, how do I make it stop? I mean, you just let this go on and on and on and on. I mean, how many times do I need to do this? You know, the, the guy, Peter, the, who became an apostle, he was thinking just like that, just like you and me. And in Matthew 18, verse 21, 
this story unfolds with a very practical question, and I think Peter thought it was a very, very good question. He must have been very proud of himself when he asked this question. I think I would have. You know, just sometimes when you ask a teacher an intelligent question, don't you feel really good about that? Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Well, that sounds, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Where do you draw the line? Seven times seems pretty generous. Seven, one, two, three, four, I mean all the way up to seven. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now put yourself, I mean, put yourself in Peter's place for a moment. Here you were, you had this great question. And you already, you already suggested what you thought was an amazing answer. And you're expecting Jesus to go, say, well said, Peter, good for you, buddy. And instead, Jesus says, no, you're not even close. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that you can't say enough is enough. Why? Because you cannot exhaust the love of God. When you stop keeping score and you let God's love flow in you and through you, then it's like taking a stand when you practice or exercise agape love. It's like standing before someone who is hurting you and you're saying to them, bring it. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter who you are. I will always love you. That's the way God loves you and me. That's agape. And that's what he wants to produce in your heart and in my heart. It's not about who they are or what they do. It's about who you are when God is in you. How can I love someone when it hurts? I've got to stop keeping score. It's not about how many times they've done it or how bad it is. It's all about him in me. Secondly, step two, I need to meditate on his mercy to me. I need to meditate on his mercy to me. So, so Jesus tells him this breathtaking response, 70 times 7. Now, if you're a math whiz, you say, okay, all right, 490 times. When I, 489, 490, that's it. That's not what Jesus had in mind at all. So he tells a story. He follows up what he tells Peter with a story in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Now, obviously, this was no ordinary servant. I mean, who, who loans 10,000 talents to just an ordinary servant person. If I had a servant, I don't know that I would do that. By the way, I don't have any. 
And so this guy was probably somebody he had put in charge. He was probably a king's appointee over some region of his kingdom. And he was given great responsibility and he was given the financial resources to do it. And in the process of doing his, his job, somehow he had frittered away 10,000 talents. Now let's think about how much that is. And this is an imprecise activity. But basically a talent to a talent and a half, one to one and a half talents, is how much money you would make in an entire year of working in that day and time. So let's say that your income is $30,000 a year times 10000 You with me? That works out to $300 million that the guy owed. I got your attention, don't I? $300 million. Now, now hang with me. That was not his money to lose. Whose money was it? It was the king's money. Can you say hurt? I mean, listen to me. Can you say hurt? The king was hurt. That's a big loss. I don't know too many people who can throw away $300 million. He was hurt. Now watch the king demonstrate this 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love suffers long and is kind. Watch the king do this, okay? First, the man comes to him, falls down, and asks for patience. Guess what? That word patient is the, patience is the very same word, the first verb of 1 Corinthians 13, 4, suffers long. He's saying, he's saying Master King, I want you to be long-suffering. I want you to suffer long Give me some more time. Don't get mad yet. Keep your anger way, way over there. And give me a chance, and I'll pay it all back to you. So what does the king do? He does it. He suffers long. He keeps his anger at a great distance. He never lights the fuse. He never goes off. He never pops a gasket, okay? And then secondly, it says the king forgives the debt which is the act of kindness. It's the act of compassion that he shows the man. It says he actually had compassion. And he cancels the debt. So what is Jesus saying to Peter? When someone hurts you, the first thing that you've got to do is remember what God did for you when you hurt him. That is step one. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. How can you do it 490 times, 10,000 times? How can you handle that kind of hurt, the enormous nature of that debt that had been incurred, the damage that did to the king's finances, the damage that probably did to his life? It probably impoverished the whole kingdom. All of that hurt. How do you deal with that? He says the first thing you do is you go back and you remember what God did for you. I don't know what that's going to take for some of you. I know what it does, what I have to do. I have to go back to God's Word. I have to read verses in the Bible that talk about grace. That talk about the sin debt that I owe. He himself bore my sins in his body on the tree. That stuff that I just say, oh God, I'm sorry. You know, and God just sort of forgives me. It didn't happen that way. 
He took the sin, he took my sins, he put it on Jesus, and Jesus died for me. He suffered for me. It was a gift that saved me, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. It's what God did for me, and I owed him this incredible debt. It was so big, so great, I could never repay it. I could never make it go away. And some of you this morning, you know what that debt is like, and you feel it intensely. And when you trust Christ, because of what he did on the cross, that debt is canceled. And no one, no one has ever owed you the way that we owed him. No one. No one ever owed you a debt so great that the only solution was that they had to die. No one. No one owed you a debt so great that the only answer to dealing with that debt was to spend an eternity in hell and that wouldn't be enough to make it stop. Nobody owes you like that. So if you can't forgive, if you can't go to Scripture and be reminded of the enormity of grace, that you're every moment of your life, every, with every breath, you are standing in a shower of His mercy and of His love. If you can't go back there, and if that doesn't serve to move you and to deal with you, to meditate on what He has done for you, if that, there's only two possibilities. You either have forgotten the grace of God or you have never known the grace of God. You either forgot completely, say, so I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I'm not worried about it. Well, maybe, maybe not. Because grace changes the human heart. And if you're unable to forgive, you've either forgotten it or you have never known it. Because when you know his love, you begin to love people like the king loved the servant. That's how you love. So people who know the love of God love God in that way. So how can I love someone that hurts? First, when it hurts, first, stop keeping score. There is no limit to the love of God, so why do I even bother? Stop counting the offenses. Secondly, I need to meditate on his mercy. That's where I got to go first. Because if I ever forget how much I've been forgiven, I'm not going to be a very forgiving person. If you're not a forgiving person, you have forgotten the grace of God. And then step three, I need to ask God to demonstrate his kindness through me. Through me. You see, the story goes on to describe how the freshly forgiven servant is suddenly placed in the role of a king. Okay, so he goes, he falls down, the king says, I forgive you, I cancel the debt, I set you free. The man goes on out the door. Now, he owed more than he could have paid in 10,000 years of work. So he comes up on a guy, here comes a guy that owes him 100 days wages. Not 10,000 years worth, 100 denarii. And he comes up to him, he says, pay me what you owe me. Now, this guy's just been forgiven over here, Right? says, pay me what you owe me. The guy uses the very same words that the other guy had used with the king. Same words. He says, have patience with me. He says, and I will pay you everything. The guy throws him into prison, debtor's prison. And, um, and very clearly, the love that the king demonstrated had no effect on him. He was unable to show kindness he met hurt with retaliation. He was unable to love the way the king loved. I got to stop here for just a moment and I got to admit something. 
There are things that people do to other people that absolutely take your breath away. There is hurt that we cause one another that, that is so bad, it is almost indescribable the kind of pain that's caused. I recognize that. The Lord Jesus recognizes that. And so when we talk about love suffers long and is kind, can I just remind you that there's only one person who's ever loved like that, and that was the Lord Jesus? And that it is absolutely impossible for you to do that in your own strength. And so you desperately, desperately need to understand that the only way you can ever love somebody, suffer the, the hurt and return kindness, is if Jesus does it in you and through you. That's the only way. There is no other option. So you can cry out to God to show kindness through you. And when you ask, what is he going to do? Well, I know it's God when in me he begins to do certain things. Because I know in myself I don't possess that ability, okay? So when he is working through you and through me, I know it's God when in me he begins to first to care about consequences. To care about consequences. When we go back and we looked at what the king did, the master of the servant who forgave the 10,000 talent debt, it says in verse 27, then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. Now when somebody sins against you, that does create a debt. They owe you something. I love the fact that the Bible speaks of offenses in terms of debt. When someone hurts you, it creates a debt. But it doesn't only create a debt between that person and you. It also creates a debt between that person and God. Why? What's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and your strength. And then to love your neighbor. So you love God and you love your neighbor. It's a command. It's not an option. You break that one, you've broken all the whole law. And so what he says, says to us at that point is that I have not only generated a debt, suddenly when that person hurts me, they have a consequence that they are going to face. And the, ultimately, the consequence of their behavior towards you truly is an eternity separated from the love of God, separated from love, period, spending an eternity in hell. And it won't ever pay off the debt. I mean, we, we, we see it in movies. We hear it in casual speech. We tell people all the time, they can just go to hell. Do you really believe that? Do you really think that? Is that really what you want them to do? Do you have any idea what you're saying? And when the consequence of that, that the Father is so hateful of, He despises that. He didn't create hell for human beings. And He loves us so much that He sent Jesus to take hell in our place on the cross. When you and I understand the consequence, the way the Father understands the consequence, that this sin, this debt, the consequence of it is so great that this person's going to spend eternity in hell if they are not forgiven at the cross. When that kind of love begins to fill your heart, the consequences of it get real to you. And you know the love of God is beginning to rise up in you. And you begin to really care. God, yeah, that hurt me, but oh my word. <laughs> 
What are they doing to themselves? What are they doing? God, help them. I don't want them to experience separation from you. I don't want them to experience wrath. I don't want them to even to suffer consequences on this side of heaven. You know it's God when in me he begins to care about consequences. I also know it's God when in me he begins to cease punishment. To cease punishment. It says not only that he was moved with compassion, but in verse 27 in the middle of the verse it says he released him. He released him. The master let him go. You know a lot of times somebody comes to you and he says, they say, will you forgive me? Oh, yeah, I forgive you. The next time they do something, you get hysterical, I mean historical. And you bring it right back up at them. You say, you know, you always do junk like that to me. You did this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this. When we release somebody, we're not going to punish them anymore. We can say, I forgive you, but when you release them, you're not secretly going to gouge them. You're not keeping the coals near your heart. You're not keeping something burning on the inside. Say, well, I forgave them, I forgave them. And you said the words, but you're still burning on the inside. You're not suffering long. And you're waiting to still punish them. Oh, they're going to have to work a little harder than that to be my friend again. They're going to have to work a little harder than that to be close to me again. And, you're, and you subtly, with words and actions and attitudes and sometimes with open displays of anger, you are continuing to punish them. You have not released them. God doesn't punish us. There's no one here who has ever been punished yet for their sin. It is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance, according to Romans 2. God is good to every person here. You may say, well, I don't feel like it. Well, the truth of, of it is you're breathing, you're alive. God has done great things for you, good things for you. But listen, when the punishment of God comes for your sins, it's either on the cross or it's on you in hell. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. And so what he does is when he forgives you and me, when I come to Christ and I put my trust in Christ, Lord, I know you died for me. Please forgive me for my sins. I'm trusting that on the cross you wiped my sins away. Well, he has compassion on you, but he does more than that. He just released you. The whole nature of redemption, the word redeem, means to set a slave or a prisoner free by paying a price for their freedom. And he releases you when you're saved. I know it's God when in me, he begins to cancel all debts. It says he had compassion, it says he released him, and then at the end of verse 27 it says, and forgave him the debt. At that moment, the king took the debt off of the servant, and he absorbed the debt, and he paid it down. He dealt with it, he canceled with it, it was no longer a debt that belonged to the servant, he just took it back and he took ownership of the debt. He canceled it. And I don't know a better way to think about forgiveness than in terms of canceling debt. That when someone has wronged you or hurt you or injured you, that when you forgive them, you find that place of compassion because of the consequences that they have engendered on themselves. And you, you release them from any kind of further retribution or, or snide remarks or whatever it is you could do to keep punishing them. You release them from that. But then you cancel the debt. You say, here's what you're doing. 
you're saying, they don't owe me anymore. They may come back to you a week later, you know, I, I asked you to forgive me, and I know you forgave me, but I, I'm really sorry for what I did. And you just got to hold up the hand and say, look, that's gone. I canceled the debt. You don't owe me anymore. And then you may be driving away from that conversation, and all of a sudden all this, this bitterness begins to kind of come into your heart, and you begin thinking about what they did, and you want to get angry at them, that sort of thing. You just have to remind yourself, Lord, I forgave them. I canceled that debt. They do not owe me a thing. And some of you have never canceled the debts that people owe you. You haven't. And as a consequence of that, somebody may have done something to you years ago, and you don't even know where they are, but they caused such a debt, such a hurt in your life that you're still, you're still churning over that. It's still boiling inside of you. And when someone else does something to you, it may have been just a small thing somebody does. And suddenly you go off on them like a volcano, and people go, what in the world? Why did they get so angry? All I did was this little bitty thing. And you know why you did that? Because you're trying to make other people pay for the debts that other people owe. That's why some of y'all are mean. Because you keep going around trying to make other people pay for what somebody else did to you years ago. You, brother, you, sister, just need to cancel the debt. Say, God, they don't owe me anymore. It'll set you free. You'll be a lot happier. It's time to get happy, friend. You've been mean long enough. Cancel the debts. I know it's God when in me, he begins to change my heart. And that's where we're going to finish. He begins to change my heart. Because I don't have the capacity to love someone like this. Especially when they hurt me with such an intensity that it just takes the breath away. And it just crushes. And you don't have the human capacity or ability to deal with it. So what do you need? You need a new heart. Oh God, change my heart. I want you to see the progression here uh, for just a moment before we close. Matthew 18 verse 26 Listen carefully. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me. What's he saying? Master, suffer long with me. Keep your anger way far away. Would you please not retaliate against me? Have patience with me. Suffer long with me. All right? That's what the master did. Okay? And so the fellow servant, now confronting this forgiven servant, the fellow servant, verse 29, fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me. Very same language that the first one used. Now being used by someone with a small debt. But it's the very same re request. He says, he says essentially to him, here's the logic. He says, look, he said, he said, you've been forgiven a great debt. Would you please suffer long and do for me what the king did for you? Would you do for me what the king has already done for you. In verse 33, of course, you know what happened. The guy didn't forgive him, threw him in prison. And so the, the king hears about it, and he goes and he arrests that dude. Good for him. That's where I'm applauding. Okay? And he goes and arrests him. And he says to him in verse 33, Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? In other words, what I did when I had compassion on you, when I set you free and I refused to punish you any further, and when I canceled your debt, that should have served as sufficient motivation to enable you to go and do the same thing to that guy. 
And so Jesus closes in verse 35, So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart, that's where it has to be, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. You say, Pastor, it's not in my heart. How can I get a new heart? You know, in the Old Testament, the way that, that we were supposed to live was God gave us all the rules of what it meant to be good, what it meant to be like God, what it took to please God. And the problem with it is, even though he gave us the rules for right living, is in the Old Testament, men and women like you and me did not have the human capacity to do what the law said to do. And so the New Testament, what is so amazing about Jesus, and this was prophesied in the Old, it didn't happen in the Old, but what is so amazing about Jesus is that there was this mystery, this unveiling of this new way of living that God has for you and me right now. And he, he mentions it this way in Colossians 1.27. He said it, it's this. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the way God saves you, it's not simply a transaction where I trust Jesus for forgiveness and God gives me a package called salvation. Now I've got a ticket to heaven. And now I, can, I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die. All of that's true, but that's not how he does it. He does it that when I trust Jesus, Jesus, the very Son of God, the only one who ever lived a perfect life, the one who only knows how to love like this, Jesus, the Son of God, comes to live inside the Christian. Through the person of his Holy Spirit, the very character of Jesus lives in you. The very love of God lives in you. It is Christ in you. And so the only way you can possibly hope to love like this is if Jesus does it in you. If Jesus accomplishes it through you. Do you need a new heart? Do you need a new heart? It may not be that you need to try harder. It may be that you've never been changed. You've never been born again. You've never had the Spirit come live inside you. That this morning you recognize that that is, in fact, your need, your problem. I want to invite you to come in just a moment. I want to encourage you to publicly get up out of your seat and come forward. Take one of these pastors by the hand and say, I want a new life. I want to trust Jesus. I want Jesus to come in and live in me. And they'll share scripture with you. They'll answer your questions. They'll pray with you. And you can leave this morning with your debt canceled, all your sins forgiven, but more significantly, with the very presence of Jesus in you. And he'll begin to teach you and grow you and love through you. Would you come? And then, brother or sister in Christ, have you simply forgotten the grace of God? Maybe that's where you are today. You're struggling to love someone who's hurt you, but but you have not meditated on what God did for you when he saved you. And maybe you just need to pause for a moment and just thank God again. Imagine your debt as a mountain that you could never move. And thank God that he swept it away with the cross of Jesus. And because you've been forgiven much, you can love much. Because you have been loved much, you can forgive much.
pray with me. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this teaching about love. But more importantly, we thank you that you are love. And we cannot love without you inside us. I pray for that man or woman today who's reaching out to you right now, who wants to trust Christ and to be saved, and who wants you to come live inside them forever. Father, I pray for that brother or sister also who's been deeply hurt. And unless you heal their heart, unless they remember grace, unless they experience grace, they're not going to get over it. And I pray today you would set them free. Set that dear one free. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.